This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. This is Every Player Has Reported for Spring Training Day. It happened yesterday, the day before. I think the Mets were in on Friday. All their players had to be there. So we need to do that. Plus... This cheating thing with the Astros is getting big. Did you see what Nick Markakis of the Atlanta Braves said today? That all of those guys, maybe I'm paraphrasing a little bit, he told ESPN, and I shouldn't paraphrase, so give me just just a second, because he didn't quite paraphrase. Uh, he said, I think all those guys over there deserve a beating. That's harsh. That's harsh. So joining us is a man who can help us dissect all of what is going on and make us feel good that it might be gray outside, but everybody's in for spring training and baseball is almost here. From Sportsnet.ca, Ben Nicholson-Smith. Ben, thank you so much for bringing rays of sunshine to an area of the planet that probably has had six since the start of January. Yeah, seriously. Thanks for having me on, Mike, and I'll do all that as far as that sunshine is concerned. <laughs> well, just talking baseball does it. So the Jays are all in. They're all nestled in their spring training beds. That's that's good news. How much of a buzz do you sense around this team this year that, that will make fans optimistic as opposed to saying, eh, we're still a couple years away? Well, I think the last couple of years, you know, Blue Jays fans and people around the team we're really looking for silver linings almost. I mean, it was pretty apparent going into last year, even this time a year ago, we knew they weren't going to contend. So you're looking for the prospects who show some promise or a breakout season from a young player. But going into this season, it is a little different. And I think still a lot of us are looking for the future as far as when the real contention is going to happen. But I think on a nightly basis, the players should be able to beat any team. And I, I think when you look at the big picture, they probably look like a 500 team, which that's something. I mean, compared to where they were a year ago, two years ago, to be a 500 team with a chance to be a little bit better than that, that's going to create a lot of intrigue. Yeah, that's not a bad thing, is it? I mean, you, you think, oh, but a 500 team. Yeah, but last year they really weren't a 500 team. Is that something that you think is, is the right step to be on in the process for this team and where they want to get to? Yeah, I think it is because you look at 95 losses a year ago and it's tough to make a leap from 95 losses to 95 wins. And there have been a few teams that have done that. The Cubs did that. Going into 2015, when they signed John Lester, uh, John Lackey, and they, they made that huge leap to, to contending and ultimately won the World Series the following season. But, you know, you look at most teams, and more often than not, it does take time. So the first step for the Blue Jays would be gaining that respectability and continuing to transition those young players like Boba Shatton and Black Guerrero Jr., and then also adding the pitching that they've acquired this offseason. Guys like Hyunjin Ryu and Tanner Roark, these are the types of of additions that should make the Blue Jays more respectable. And then you start looking, maybe it's the second half of this year, maybe it's next year. There should come a point, there has to come a point, where it's not just respectability that the Blue Jays are are achieving, but it's actually contending and reaching the playoffs again. What did it suggest to you? And we're talking baseball with Ben Nicholson-Smith from Sportsnet.ca because 
We can because because baseball is basically back. The first spring training game I think is on Friday. Not for the Jays, but just period. That's okay. As long as somebody is throwing a baseball and somebody's trying to hit it, it means that we're almost out of what well, hasn't really been that bad a winter here in southwestern Ontario, but still. But when you look at, at kind of the moves that the Jays make, what did they suggest to you? You mentioned Tanner Roark and Hyunjin Ryu. What did they suggest? Well, it says that this front office is willing to spend and able to spend. And that's something that they've said for years. But let's face it, Mark Sapiro and Ross Atkins have not built that credibility with fans completely until this offseason when they went out and they actually did what they said that they were going to try to do, which was sign some starting pitching. And, and sign a guy who's not just any starting pitcher, but Ryu was the runner-up in NL Cy Young voting last year. He's really good. He should actually help this team a lot. So I think that by signing those pitchers, you have you have almost two things going on. One is the optics, where fans can now look at this front office and say, "Okay, you're going to follow through on what you say you're going to do." And then, secondly, and you know, more importantly than that, you look at the field, and the product on the field should be better. They shouldn't have to be searching desperately for someone to start a game. You know, anyone to start a game the way they were the last couple of seasons. Now they should have more respectability up and down that rotation. And that definitely sounds encouraging and positive. Okay, we've we've set kind of the, the scene for the Toronto Blue Jays. Reasons to be excited. The fact that the front office is willing to spend money. The fact that they're stepping in the right direction. Baseball itself, how long do you expect this Astros Paul to hang over the league? Man, it's crazy, right? I mean, this has been really interesting to follow. The comments, like the Marquecas one that, that you mentioned, from Mike Trout, from Cody Ballinger, from Trevor Bauer, all kinds of players speaking out. And, you know, as, as we continue to hear reactions from players, I don't think that's going anywhere in the next week or so, that's for sure. We also have an ongoing investigation that Major League Baseball is still conducting with respect to the Boston Red Sox. And details have continued to trickle out around the Astros. So I think that'll keep it going in the short term. And then once you have games begin, I'm really going to be interested to see how players handle the Astros in games. I mean, I don't think that necessarily we're going to see beanballs thrown all the time, but I'll be interested to watch. And you've also got, you know, you have a fan's reaction that will be interesting to track. Because around baseball, whether it's, you know, the the AL West or whether it's the Blue Jays that they're facing or whether, you know, the Dodgers in an interleague game, there are a lot of fan bases that have reason to be frustrated and, and frankly, angry with the Astros. So I think watching that will be interesting once the season actually begins. Does it surprise you covering baseball like you do that you had Carlos Correa standing up in front of reporters and trying to tell stories that I don't think everybody bought about, you know, things like tattoos or things like, you know, my wife was told by Jose Altuve's wife that he didn't want his shirt taken off after hitting a home run and just that he went on and on and on. No one stopped that. Yeah, the whole thing is honestly surprising, and it's gotten so surprising in so many twists and turns that I almost stopped being surprised by anything, which is the crazy part of it. It's really entertaining. I mean, there might come a point where we get tired of this in the same way that we did uh, tire of the steroid discussion that happened um, in the in the two thousands, which was you know of course interesting and relevant and important. But at a certain point, it's like all right, we've we've heard enough of this. But I don't think we're there. Or at least speaking for myself. I'm not there yet with this Astros story. I find it to be 
pretty compelling stuff, and especially when you see the kind of honest answers that the players are giving. Yeah, and... You know, and it may be, it's it's a strange world that we live in, but when you're honest, sometimes it can sound like you're making it up, because sometimes the truth can be a little stranger than fiction. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you look at, if someone had told us five, six months ago that this was going to be the dominant story in baseball, you know, honestly, it would have been hard to believe, right? You've got these trash cans. You've got this code-breaking. You've got three major league managers getting fired. One of them, Carlos Beltran, getting fired before he even managed a game with the Mets. I mean, it's it's all kinds of reactions. Even you know, a player like Mike Trout, who's basically you know baseball's version of Sidney Crosby, doesn't say much and amazing all-time great, but but pretty much stays out of the spotlight. And there he is yesterday saying that he's lost respect for the Astros players. So I think that goes to show the scale of this and, and really just how frustrated people are within the game. Well, we'll see how that frustration goes when the fans can contribute. Do we have a baseball record for how long fans have booed in a game? I mean, has it ever stretched into the third or fourth inning? I think we could do that this year. Oh, yeah. I, I think we'll see some creative signs, too, and I'm sure a lot of trash can banging everywhere the Astros <laughs> go. I mean, it's, it's going to be fun to watch, and, and they deserve it. Like they did cheat on the way to winning, so... It'll be, it'll be fun to watch, but like you said, Mike, always, always get to have baseball back. It is. It makes us feel a little bit warmer, and the Astros' story, as crazy it is, as it is, compelling, just like you pointed out. Very compelling. Ben, thanks for your coverage on it. We'll look forward to more. Anytime. Sounds good. That's Ben Nicholson-Smith from Sportsnet.ca. It's true, though. I mean, if you don't know this story, here's, here's kind of the story in a nutshell. The Houston Astros, and you think about what you want to teach kids as they're coming up. What do, you, what do you want to make sure? You want to make sure that they know right from wrong. That's number one. If you can teach a child right from wrong, half the battle of parenting is over. Maybe at least 40%. Right from wrong is so key. And then you've got a baseball team that has this, in a way intricate and well-thought-out way of cheating, and at the same time, it's like saying you're building a phone by tying two cups together with string. So it's it's kind of the, that in a nutshell, in that they had this trash can banging system where they would steal signs, and they would, they would in order to tell the hitter, they would bang on a trash can. Or there were allegations of a buzzer being on Jose Altuve. That's why we were talking about his jersey, that that buzzer would go off. Now, everybody has disputed that on the Astros side of things. But, you know, it's, it's wild to see the lengths that the Astros went to to essentially cheat. But at the same time, stealing signs has always been in the game. You just have to do it under the stealing signs rules. So if you can notice something, that's fine. But if you zero in on it or film it and then you kind of relay that to your players, that all of a sudden is is way out of bounds. So that's the difference here. And Astros players are speaking up about this. They cheated in 2017 and the real problem that everybody has is this they won the world series in 2017 that's why everybody's so mad hey hey and other players are mad and that maybe they went out and they had a terrible game against the astros and they got sent down to the minors and maybe they never got another sniff at baseball so in other words if there hadn't been this cheating going on if they hadn't known what pitch was coming next then maybe certain players would still be in the majors or would be getting another shot. So this is a, this is messy. This is not what baseball needs. I still believe baseball is dying, and I still believe that give it 25 years and 
it's not really going to be much of a thing other than a recreational sport, you know? Jogging or jogging, uh, as I've heard it said, is is not a sport people watch very much. You don't watch marathon running very often. You don't watch a marathon from start to finish, but it's a thing. I think baseball will be a lot more like that. I really do. I think the, the interest in it will all but fade away, but that's my own opinion. We have a spot in London that I think to truly appreciate it, you have to go back to when it was in there. And you had to go back to building a downtown arena. I didn't think it would work. I didn't think there was enough parking. Because there were so many things that were done at that time that are not done the way they are now. The Ottawa Senators are a good example. It was in Ottawa over the weekend, and when they built their building... When they first came into the National Hockey League, this would have been they came in in the early 90s, but by the time they built the building, uh, I think it was about 95 or whatever, they played their first couple of games down or first couple of seasons downtown. But they built it way out in Canada. Land was cheaper. I think that was the biggest deal. But the idea was to build a building and then have all this parking around it. And that's not the way the world works anymore. And parking has never been an issue at Budweiser Gardens. And whoever fought to put it downtown, I know Vic Cote and Chris O'Reilly did a good job building it, did an amazing job building it. But everybody on council at the time that fought for it to be downtown, thank you. Thank you for that. There are more than a few names. And it was the right move. Western Fair was not the right move. I thought it was. But downtown was brilliant. And you look at what this building has done, what it continues to do, and how it does put London on the map. And there is a report today, and again, here are just two pages of it. And that report is going to City Hall, and it's talking about how much money was expected to be generated by Budweiser Gardens, and how much has been. And talk about that right now, because the two numbers are very, very different. The expected was smaller than the has-been-generated in 2019. Brian Ohl, the general manager of Budweiser Gardens, joins us. Brian, I know I've said this before, but I've got to say it again. Congratulations! Well, (laughs) thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. It's still kind of... A lot of people walk around. I had this conversation last week. A lot of people still walk around and say they can't believe Budweiser Gardens is in London, is doing what it's doing. And this is 20 years later that this is still going on. Do you get conversations that pop up like that as well? Yeah, the the community is, you know, they've always been very supportive of the building. And, uh, um, but it's given them, I think, a source of pride and, and we're thrilled to be a part of that. But, uh, I, I tell you, it's, uh, you know, credit goes to a lot of people before my time that, you know, that, that decided, you know, to do this and that it would work because, uh, you know, we're, we're proving it right, you know. Well, we've got a report going to a city committee today. And that's really kind of turning some heads because the report indicated that there was $146,000 of revenue budgeted. In other words, hey, in 2019, we expect to bring in $146,000 of revenue. You guys have kind of blown that away. Uh, the number on this piece of paper here says $339,008. Yeah, and I tell you, Mike, um, it, it it makes the you know everybody at the Bud Gardens very very proud to be able to do that. That uh, again, it really is a, a testament to uh, 
some foresight by a lot of people, but also the community and the support that they've given to the to the venue. You've got a couple of regular tenants in the London Knights and the London Lightning, but in terms of attracting shows and attracting artists and those sorts of things, what is it that you make use of as far as selling features go to come to London, to come to Budweiser Gardens? I've always wondered that. Well, it, you know, because we're not, we always say there's must-play markets, and those must-play where they have to play, that's Toronto, basically, right? Um, so we we have to work a little bit harder, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit different. And it's the people that we have working there, and it's everybody buys into the philosophy that we've got to treat not just the patrons coming in the building, but but the artists and and who they're coming in with. We got to treat them like we appreciate them being there because we we truly do. And and um, I think that carries out through the the entertainment industry. We have a great reputation of really being artist and, and show friendly. How do you do that? Is is that just like the we always hear the line of the green M and M's? Ah, no green M and M's, and that that became kind of this this thing that took off for a long time. But is it is it just saying to the artist, hey, how can we help you feel comfortable, or, or are there little tips and tricks to do it? You know, it's 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 really it starts with the attitude, right? And, you know, and and whatever we can do, yeah, you ask and you but you you try to anticipate. You know, you don't want them or their crew coming in to have to think about anything else but getting that show up and playing the show for the night. But we do little things like, um, you know, there's there's a in our business there's always uh, uh, jokes about uh, backstage catering and how terrible it is. You know, it's oh, it's chicken. You know, it's rubber chicken or something like that. We take very uh, a lot of pride in in putting in and thinking about what it is that we're feeding the artists when they come through. Um, and, and trying to make it special and have people there to, to talk about it and, and, and make sure that, that it, it, it sounds stupid, but it really does make a difference. The other thing we do that uh, other venues didn't do, they're starting to now, and, and that's we, we, buy them, we buy them gifts. We, in, in most venues, we'll give them a, a hockey sweater or something like that, but we, we do some research, find out what they like, um, and, uh, and then we buy them something that that you know either from london or, or canada that that's unique but it's something that we know that they're going to like um uh john mayer is a big uh jimmy hendrix fan and it just so happened first time he came we got him a, a jimmy hendrix that just came out like that week book and he was so appreciative and and I, you know that he remembers that that like hey you know it's kind of like tells his manager take put this on the bus you know it's like don't pack it away put it on the bus i want to read it tonight you know that's amazing. That's kind of how we. That's kind of how we stand out. Yeah, I mean, I, ways, as yeah. as you're describing gift, we're all thinking, hey, what are you going to give someone who typically has millions of dollars of their own and really doesn't struggle to get anything that they want? But something as as you know as neat as as a book, the a book that's just come out, they're going to be touring. They read. I love that. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So so we do. Like I said, we you know we we have my staff will. Spend time researching. I think Kurt Keith Urban talked about they just put in a billiard room in their house, so we bought him stuff for his billiard room. You know, <laughs> and and uh, you know, it's like this shows that we we're not just that, that we actually care. We're actually paying attention. We know who's coming to the building, and we know something about them.
We are talking with the general manager of Budweiser Gardens, Brian Ohl, and we're talking about revenue that has exceeded expectations. The idea that 146000 would be generated in 2019, according to a city report, and it came in at $339,008. That report goes to the city today. And we're just kind of looking at, at some of the things that really make this a true gem of London. You talk about the cruise. It's a pretty easy setup at... Budweiser Gardens in that you can back the trucks up and the stage, usually, you know, you don't have to walk very far. The London Knights coming into Ottawa yesterday, you got to walk all the way halfway around the building. Mrs. Saga, a lot of times you have to walk halfway around the building. Do things like that matter? Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, in the design of the building, and we, we were involved early on, you know, we were part of that, but I, I, I tip my hat to Vic Cote, who, who retired from the city, but he, he, went around to talk to venues and, you know, what's important. And, and he was a big one that, you know, your loading area has got to be good because like, you don't, you don't want to have, you don't want anybody coming in there and have a reason to complain. So if the loading area is good, you know, there's great, you know, there's enough uh, steel in the, in the ceiling to rig a show. I mean, just little things that you wouldn't think of that are really important that, that affect uh, the reputation that they have. But, but Vic Cote and, and the research he did in terms of, helping design the building where it was really important. Brian, before we let you go, there is sometimes talk that, hey, the building is now going to be 20 years old. The report actually said that the final payment that the city will make is coming in 2023. So less than three years from now, it's going to be paid off. And sometimes you get talk that either the back of the house will be changed or there might be an expansion coming. Is there anything you can tell us in that way? Well, we, you know, I, and this is, this is, uh, me personally as well, that I, I believe that, uh, we need to have an expansion, uh, to keep catching up with those venues. I mean, not only do we need more back of house space for those, those bigger events. You know, if you remember last year, the Junos, we, you know, we, the city and the, the event spent a lot of money on, on tenting. If we can expand and not have to buy that tenting, that makes us a little more financially uh, attractive to some of these of you know world class international and, and national events that that just need that space. The other thing is to be quite honest, you know we we we've got a, a gem of a hockey team in the London Knights, and uh, you know when we opened up, they had the best uh, uh, dressing room in 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 the in the OHL, and now they're probably in the bottom third with all the you know with Oshawa coming online and some of the other venues, um, Windsor and. You know, they, they've got to keep attracting good talent, and one way to do that is have the right facilities. So in my mind, I'd, I'd like to, if we do that, if we get to that expansion, that we were able to, to upgrade their facilities as well to make them, keep them as, as the, the top franchise in uh, Canada. Is there any timeline on when decisions like that come? You know, it, it's funny. Um, you know, I, I speak with the city about it. The city is, uh, you know, in, in terms of the, you know, the staff that I've talked, uh, spoken with, um, I support of, um, I'm working, talking with, uh, some of our corporate folks. It's, it's really, it's going to happen. It's got to be, a, again, like the whole building was in the first place. It's got to be a public private partnership. So it's just getting everybody aligned to, to what, you know, what that would look like and, and figuring out how to, how to fund that. I'm hopeful that it'll happen, but, uh, you know, I, 
You know, I'm an optimistic guy. <laughs> hey, well, keep that optimism because, you know what, it keeps doing things like this and it keeps you winning awards and it does keep Budweiser Gardens that, that major gem that a lot of people kind of scratch their heads over when it was first constructed. Nobody's scratching their heads at all right now. Brian, thanks so much for the time. And again, congratulations. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I appreciate the call. Thanks. Brian Old, General Manager of Budweiser Gardens. And before we go, got... An email from Jim Bag, and that's the way he signed it off. So, Jim Bag, I'm going to call you Jim Bag. And he says, hats off to the employees who maintain and clean Budweiser Gardens because it sure doesn't look 20 years old. Exactly. They are remarkable in the way that they work to keep it clean. What was Walt Disney's secret? We talked about it last week. Keeping the place clean. Budweiser Gardens, same thing. Food ordering apps, they come by many names. Uber Eats is one. Uh, what else have we got? Foodora, Skip the Dishes, Nelson says DoorDash. So many of them, and there's a reason there are so many of them. They seem to be working. Well, it just so happens that our next guest has been looking very closely at this for not just the last little while, for a long time. Sylvain Charlebois is a professor in food distribution and policy. He's the senior director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. And there is something new that has come out. And it's a survey from Angus Reid and from Dalhousie University. And it's looking at the use of food delivery apps. Joining us right now is Sylvain Charlebois. Dr. Charlebois, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Let's kind of dig into this, because you've been looking at this for a long, long time. So at first, there was an explosion of these apps onto the market, and people seem to be making use of them. Is that still the case? Uh, even more so. Uh, it's It's been incredible. That space is now worth $1.5 billion, and we are expecting that number to reach $2 billion by the end of this year. So uh, as you can imagine, that amount of money, at least in the food business, is, is hard to ignore. And that's why you're seeing more apps. In fact, today, uh, McDonald's is launching McDelivery. Uh, it's all over Twitter. Uh, and that's the reason why there are so many people actually ordering uh, food by using these apps because they want to dine out in at their homes. It's the equivalent of a staycation, but you get to eat. So you can staycation now and you can have people just bring the food right to you so that you feel like you're eating out, but you're actually eating in. You never have to leave the comfort of your own pajamas, it looks like. But what is this doing when you inject that money? Is that money shifting from maybe the sit-down experience at a restaurant or is it new money coming in? I think there's a little uh, of of both. Uh, I do see some restaurants uh, becoming less busy as a result. In fact, uh, I remember a few uh, few months ago, I was actually sitting in a restaurant for breakfast. I was the only one in a restaurant that morning because there was a snowstorm out. But as I was eating breakfast, seven, count them, seven people, uh, delivery people showed up to pick up uh, someone's meal to be delivered by uh, by one of these apps, so it's 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 incredibly busy. So, it, it, it these apps are immune to uh, weather; they're immune to seasons. 
Uh, people love the convenience of ordering stuff. I'm not sure if you've used any of these apps, but it takes literally seconds to get an order in, and you know exactly when it's going to be delivered. Now, in terms of the cost of doing this business, in order to pay the delivery people, you have to somehow add on some dollars. So if we're looking at this, how are they making sure that that you know they're attractive, but at the same time don't price themselves out of people actually using them? Well, so here's the thing, because, I mean, these apps do come at a price. They It, it does cost more to order uh, food. If you actually look at menu items, typically you are expecting to pay more for food. But on top of that, they actually slap usually a service fee. And, of course, the person delivering your food will expect a tip, which often you will pay once you've consumed the food which is actually kind of nice uh, as a feature because you don't you don't feel the pressure of tipping a person in front of that person if you're if you're not satisfied with the service but all in all I mean you can easily uh, you can easily pay uh, your food 30 20 30 percent more than what than the food you would actually eat in in a uh, in a restaurant and if we're talking about, you know, feeding a family of four, paying 20 to 30% more, if you go out in a restaurant, it's hard to feed a family of four for, let's say, $80, but at least it's a, a nice round number. But that's another 16 to $24 on top of that to eat in. Yeah, exactly. And uh, guess what? 67% of consumers under the age of 34 have actually tried these apps, and more than 25% actually use them on a regular basis. So this is the one demographic that would typically not have a whole lot of money, but they are willing to spend more on food. So um, (laughs) I guess food prices aren't necessarily an issue for them. Yeah, or we're not training our kids how to spend their money all that well. We're talking with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, (laughs) professor in food distribution and policy, the senior director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. And Dr. Charlebois pointed to some of the numbers that have come out of this, the idea that you have a whole lot of people that have tried this, 67% of people under 34 years old, and 39% of Canadians have now tried a, a delivery app at least once. Some are using them all the time. And this was done by Angus Reed and Dalhousie University. So are there, are there complaints about this? Are there things that people don't like about these services? Uh, there's a couple of things that, that do come up from time to time. Uh, the first one, of course, is price. Uh, I think everyone would... Uh, with some knowledge or with arithmetic, we'll actually notice that prices are typically higher. But the other one that comes up a lot is packaging. Packaging is an absolute uh, nightmare for for these uh, for apps and for meal kit uh, providers in particular. And so uh, this is the one issue that the industry is trying to resolve. But it's not going to be easy because you want your food fresh. Um, you want your food hot uh, and of high quality when it's delivered. So it's going to be very difficult to change that anytime soon. The other other issues, uh, professionalism from the driver, it did come up. Not as often, though. Uh, 18% are concerned about that. And, uh, and the fact that their favorite restaurants didn't participate, weren't actually using an app, that actually came up a lot. And so right now, 
that space is is predominantly occupied by by chains we all know, uh, which is really kind of problematic if you're an independent restaurateur. Say you're in London, and you actually uh, want to expand your market a little bit more. It's very difficult with all the noise generated by uh, well-known American franchises. When we look at what this may do to the restaurant industry, you talk about restaurateurs that are now having to deal with this. You know, someone had to answer and and put together those seven meals that you were talking about when you were out having breakfast. What could this do? We've heard the term ghost kitchen before. What's a ghost kitchen? A ghost kitchen, yeah, actually. So a ghost kitchen is uh, a place where you actually see a bunch of cooks uh, preparing food to support some of these apps. And, and, and that place wouldn't have a dining room, wouldn't have a counter for takeout either. Uh, and you wouldn't notice from outside that there's actually a kitchen in there. So that's why they call them ghost kitchen. And this is the one phenomenon we think is going to happen more and more, because when you think about it, location is not an issue for ghost kitchen. So you can actually have these things operate in in the suburb, uh, far away from 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 center towns, uh, where rent is actually cheap. You can, or you can actually buy a building in the country on the countryside almost, and 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 get your delivery people to you, so you can actually deliver these products to uh, to uh, customers. So this is the one phenomena that could happen. Grocers are thinking about it, for example, let's say Sobe's, they want to open up a restaurant, they could actually open up a virtual restaurant by using uh, some of these ghost kitchens. And so you could say Shea Sobe's, and you order online and you get your meal delivered to your place without knowing that really Sobe's doesn't have a kitchen. It actually subcontracts cooks uh, in some place somewhere. Isn't that wild? And then I guess the other item is, how does it change the restaurant industry? Are we going to see people who are hired who then look after, and maybe we're seeing this already, but who look after the deliveries and that's their role? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I do believe that. Uh, and, And so the more the market matures around these apps, I do see some fragmentation occurring. Uh, there, there's a lot of money, and and so I do think that over time you'll see uh, market segments be recognized. So, for example, uh, vegans will uh, will probably see will have an app for for them, and then of course, if you're a pescatarian, you'll have an app for that. If you're into Indian food, for example, in your area, there's a, there's going to be an app for that. So, th- there's the, the the supply on the supply side. I think. I think it will it will become more sophisticated than it is now. Isn't that wild? Well, Dr. Charlebois, thank you for monitoring this. Thank you for bringing the latest to us. All the best today. Are you ordering anything tonight? Uh, not tonight, but I have in the past, and it's pretty darn expensive, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> See, you and I are on the same boat. We're we're looking at this from a cost perspective, but exactly. somehow, somehow the demographic that doesn't seem to have a lot of money is making the most use of it. Uh, I'll be interested to see how that data comes out eventually. All the best. Okay. Take care. That is Dr. Sylvester Charlebois, professor in food distribution and policy and the senior director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. You know, we've gone through some really interesting changes in generations, and we always go back when we talk about things like this to anyone who lived through the Depression. 
And how did anyone who had ever lived through the Depression act? They had stashes of money, stashes of supplies everywhere. And it was just, it was ingrained. It was something that they just did naturally. You know, I always tell the story of going down into my grandmother's freezer when she would say, can you go get me the ground beef? And it was in the furnace room and it was scary and I was seven. And so you you think, ah, I got to run in, run all the way back to the freezer. And it's kind of dark, you know, remember basements? And so you open up the freezer and you would pick up the ground beef. There'd be 20 bucks under it. 20 bucks going back a long time ago. That was a good fine. Now, of course, you had to leave it there. You told your dad about it and he would say, you didn't touch that, did you? Just leave that there. That That's for safekeeping. And you think, sure, okay, safekeeping. Wow, 20 bucks. But that was the attitude. And then, you know, the appreciation for money, I think, decreased somewhat. But it was still there because we handled it physically, Right. When you had your first quarter or you could put together three quarters and hit a corner store and buy those 10 cent sour gums and, you know, dinosaur eggs and things like that, that was amazing. But you had to somehow come up with the actual currency. And now that's kind of been lost. And I wonder if some of that plays into the fact that we're seeing the younger generation say, I don't feel like cooking. I hate it. But I'd love to order this meal. It's only four bucks. It's only four bucks. It's only four bucks. You know, you can play the Tim Hortons game. You buy a coffee a day? Yeah? I buy a coffee a day. So one coffee a day. What What is it, like a medium? You buy a medium coffee a day? Sure. Medium coffee a day. That's not bad. It's pretty normal, right? Sure. Well, one medium coffee per day, if I'm adding it in right, is what? About a dollar eighty times 365 days? That's $657 a year. What if you bought two mediums a day? All of a sudden, you're over 1200 bucks. What if you throw in a breakfast sandwich every once in a while? Then you have a part of your budget that reads Tim Hortons. Usually, we have a part of our budget that reads Walmart as well or Costco, and that's just the thing. So you wonder whether it's time to teach budgeting a little bit better. I don't know where to go, but I think that has a lot to do with it. Ah, it's, it's only 4 bucks. Well, how many times have you ordered it this year? Ah, about 200 That's $800. I don't know. I'm sounding all old guy, aren't I? I'll just leave the kids be. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 